Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. We're here for part two today with our guest from last week, Dr. Craig Keener, who holds an endowed chair in biblical studies. He's also a historian by training, but his endowed chair is at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. He is a prolific New Testament uh, scholar and historian and has written a new book uh, called Christobiography. Don't let the title scare you. Um, because he's, he's talking in this about the conventions of ancient biography and what the, what the readers of the gospel writers would have expected in terms of historical accuracy with the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, Craig, thanks for joining us for part two on this. Uh, really a pleasure to have you with us. It's, it's always great to be with you, Scott, uh, whether for the podcast or anything else. Well... Hey, we, we ended up our last episode on this talking about the, the words of Jesus. Um, and you, you'd maintained that the, the, the conventions of ancient history, they didn't have tape recorders, they didn't have you know, television cameras to record this verbatim. Uh, and what, the, gospel, what the, the readers of ancient biographies and the gospel readers would have expected were not the exact words of Jesus, but rather a faithful rendering, uh, getting the gist of what Jesus taught. So let me, let me, at the risk of stepping on a few toes here, uh, how, how does that view of the Gospels in ancient biography fit in with a, a very common thing today when we read a red-letter Bible? I, I actually like the red-letter Bible because it's, it's easier on my eyes to have some contrast. But, um, and of course... From a Christian perspective, the, the problem with the Red Letter Bible is we believe it's all inspired, <laughs> not, not just Jesus' words, but, um, but yeah, it, it's not, they didn't have quotation marks in, in, uh, in Greek and in Hebrew, so it was, it was understood, this was just part of the convention, it's the way people wrote, they would put things in their own words, they were supposed to, to paraphrase, that was, I mean, for them not to paraphrase, could almost be seen as plagiarism, at least at an elite level. But I don't think the Gospels at a popular level would have been accused of plagiarism. You know, the words of Jesus are community property, not just that of, of a single author. But it is, it is true that, that that wouldn't be expected. And it could, it could not be expected. I mean, after all, the Gospels are written in Greek. And even though most of Lower Galilee, including where Jesus lived, would have been bilingual, so Jesus probably did speak Greek in some settings, he probably mostly gave his teachings in Aramaic, especially yeah, in Galilee. A, 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 very, a close variant of Hebrew. Yes. Uh, okay, so, so he would have, so we're, we're, the gospel writers were essentially translating yeah, Jesus or, from, or, from Aramaic to Greek. Yeah, or probably, probably depending on translations that have been made. And when you make a translation, I mean, there's more than one word often you can use, more than one way you can configure the, the, the wording. So, I mean, nobody would expect it to be verbatim on, on any level. And that doesn't take away from the fact that we, we still have the inspired, we have the exact yes. words that God intended us to have yes. by inspiration. Exactly. But they might not be the exact words that Jesus uttered on any given occasion. And if they were, 
those who don't understand Aramaic very well wouldn't understand. Would have a big, a very, yeah, that'd be a very big problem. <laughs> the the point is not simply to recite. You know, I mean, that's that's a Quranic view of inspiration. I respect. You know, a dig, a Muslims who, who yeah, <laughs> are so devoted they want to memorize and, and recite, but. You know, that's, that's not our, our Christian understanding of inspiration. Our Christian understanding is we want to hear the message. We want to hear the meaning. We want to understand Jesus' point so we can live by it. But we, well, I think we would also say that, the, that because we believe in verbal inspiration, the exact words that God intended us for us yes. to have do matter. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, we, we get to hear what God wanted us to hear. And even though in the, in the historical conventions of the day, because we don't hold to a dictation view, right? I mean, the, the Gospels are not like the Ten Commandments, yeah. That case were carved yes. in stone and were handed down from on high. Yes. They, the the process of inspiration. I may not be aware of this. It's probably worth taking a second to, to spell this out. Sure. But the the process of inspiration was not at all like dictation. Right. I mean, there. I mean, the times in the prophets, for example, when they say, "Thus says the Lord." Yes. We might expect that that's m- more more literally dictated. Yes. But most of the Bible is not like that. Right. So the process of inspiration is the activity of the Spirit, but the but the human author's yes. contribution was a was a, an important and meaningful one. Yes. So how I mean how how do you how how should we understand the inspiration? Of, of the gospel accounts, sure. even though we might not have the exact words, of Je- or probably don't have the exact words of Jesus that he uttered, say, in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, in Aramaic, in and, Aramaic. and so on. Yeah. Um, the, the point is that God gave us the message, gave us the, the meaning, gave us the point that, that we should have. Um, so I often wish we had more. I'd love if we discovered some, you know, Luke mentions many accounts, you know, so we've got Mark, we've got... Uh, some material that, that Luke shared with Matthew, but man, I would love if we discovered some others. But that's the historian in me, right. <clears throat> because just because we discovered the others, I mean, maybe that person's memory, the Holy Spirit wasn't, you know. So it doesn't make it inspired, e- even if it's historically accurate. Right. I mean, lots of you can read lots of history that's not <laughs> historically inspired. But um, so, so uh, here I'm distinguishing from what, say, any historian would would look at. From our view as Christians, um, as Christians, we believe because Jesus embraced the Old Testament as God's word, he commissioned those who would carry on his message. We believe that God has given us the message that he wants us to have. God has inspired it. Second Timothy 3.16 speaks of that as being theopneustos. God uh, breathed. God breathed. God breathed, yes. Uh, so in, in uh, I'm actually doing something else on this uh, at ETS, but... Uh, in in um, Greek circles, inspiration, uh, including prophetic inspiration, so often they would think that that entailed, you know, this is exactly what the, the deity wanted. The person was completely possessed by the deity. Of course, we would say they were possessed by something else often. But, <laughs> but in any case... Um, but some 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 Greeks didn't didn't think it entailed that. So, you know, some Greeks they felt free to criticize uh, things that they considered to be inspired. But what we see in Jewish circles, including Jewish circles from the first century, like like Philo of Alexandria and Josephus, and um, you know various other Jewish writings, they considered that inspiration meant no. This is God's word. 
and this is going to be completely true. And and I think um, that in Second Timothy, when he's you know he's talking about the scriptures, so his, his Jewish material, when he talks about inspiration there, uh, or you know similar ideas elsewhere in the New Testament, we can you know assume take for granted that he's he's doing that in a Jewish context where it's understood this is this is God's word this is God's message okay. and the guy and the, the the writers of the New Testament for example were not they were not scribes taking dictation right I mean they were genuine we would call them genuine authors yes so and the role of the spirit would it be fair to say that, that they the spirit gave sort of supernatural supervision yeah to the gospel accounts to ensure yeah. that they were free from error yeah, uh, but, but it's, it's it's clear that the, their personalities come yeah. out, their emphases come out. And even um, the way God spoke to prophets, I mean, Son of Man, Ezekiel is called that by God all the time. But but that's a nickname God had for Ezekiel. He doesn't call the other prophets right. that. So even even sometimes in the prophets, we have different styles. But, you know, when 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 you know, it's directly from from God mm-hmm. in in a more direct form. Yeah, so even, there's even stylistic differences there. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Now, yeah. In, in the Gospels, though, often Jesus' teachings, we do have a certain style that comes through, uh, even though, you know, this is translation Greek, so to speak. I mean, Amen, I say to you, truly I say to you, we don't know anybody else in antiquity who went around talking like that. <laughs> so there's certain <laughs> things that, you know, where, we, where we're getting, we're hearing even the idioms of Jesus. So we're meeting Jesus in the Gospels. But, you know, anybody who's reading in translation is not reading him in the original. And even if you're reading him in Greek, it's usually not the original. But it's the message. You're you're meeting Mm -hmm. Jesus there. Let me go back to the the end of the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. John basically says, there's a lot more I could have written down. Exactly. Uh, There's a lot more that I had available to me. But I picked and chose basically what I thought was most relevant to make the point about Jesus being the Son of God. Yes. Now, that's pretty typical, I think, because, you know, the gospel writers didn't record everything. I mean, there's, right. you, know, there's large, there's, you know, large blocks of Jesus' life that mm-hmm. there's virtual silence about. Yes. So is, is it, would it, would it be fair to say that the gospels still fit that Genre of ancient biography, even though they were, ve- I mean, they were very selective. Oh yeah. With the material that they, I mean, there's, you know, twenty years, twenty plus years, which there's nothing about, and disproportionate amount on the final week yes. of the life of Jesus. Absolutely. So obviously, selections taking place. Yes. Um, why, why is that not? Uh, is that do ancient biographies do the same kinds of things? Absolutely. In what the way the Gospels did. Yes, absolutely. I mean, most of them don't have like such a disproportionate amount for the you know the equivalent of the Passion Week, but sometimes they do, especially if the person's death is particularly significant. They died as a martyr, Socrates, or something like that. So, so the same, much the same disproportion. Yes, in, in the in biography those. of Socrates. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, again, it depends on which biography of Socrates, but I mean, right. his death was considered so significant, and um, in, in in ancient biographies, they normally were selective. Sometimes they had a lot of material, and the biography is larger than than some others. But 
sometimes they didn't have much material to work with, but usually, even, even where they, they were pretty large, they had to be selective. I mean, with Alexander the Great, there was so much that could be said. Arian does it in five volumes. Uh, most, you know, Plutarch has to get it in one volume, so, you know, they had to be very selective. Why, why doesn't there, I mean, you, you can see people saying today, well, if you're being selective, you're, you're giving a biased view of the person's life. How does this, the fact that these historians were selective and the gospel writers were selective, how does that not compromise their object, objectivity in presenting, you know, in the ancient, the ancient biographer or in, as it pertains to the life of Jesus? Well, whenever we preach, I mean, we don't, we don't read all four gospels just everything in the gospels. I mean, we're being selective automatically when we preach, when we, when we recount any stories from the gospels, we're being, we're being selective. And the gospel writers had to do the same thing. I mean, it's impossible to, um, I'm, I'm not a deconstructionist by any means, but one thing that literary deconstructionists pointed out is you can have a virtually infinite mass of information. Nobody's going to include all of it. <laughs> you, have to, you have to select from it. And what they would say, and their successors in literary criticism would say, is that by being selective, you are imposing a certain perspective on the text. That's inevitable. That's unavoidable. Otherwise, you can't have a narrative without doing that. Yeah, and I think, again, I want to remind our listeners of, of one of the points you made in our, in our discussion last week. Yes. That just because, just because they have an agenda yes. doesn't compromise the historical reliability. In fact, right. I, I think you concluded that it actually augments the historical reliability because they don't want their account to be debunked. The message yes. was so important, they don't want it to be debunked. Yes. Uh, now, one of the criticisms of the Gospels is that we can't expect the memory of the sources who, who are recounting these events to be perfect. Uh, I mean, we've played, you know, everybody's played this telephone game before yeah. where, the, you know, where you go around the circle and, the, and you tell the same story to, to different people around the circle and it comes back to where it started almost unrecognizable. What's to prevent the Gospels from falling victim to something like the telephone game? Now, as Christians, we would add from John 14, 26, you know, that, that the Spirit of God comes and, and inspires that memory, uh, bringing to remembrance what Jesus taught and helping them understand what Jesus taught. But just from a purely his, historiographic perspective, what we're talking about from the uh, period of the gospel, well, from the period of Jesus to the period of the writing of the Gospels, is within living memory. It's often defined as roughly 40 to 80 years. Uh, not not the writing of the Gospels, I mean, but the period of living memory is often defined as that. It's it's uh, defined especially as the period when uh, when people who knew the eyewitnesses are still alive. <clears throat> it, it provides kind of a control. So after living memory, wild things can start happening. But during the period of living memory, that's usually not even called today oral tradition. That's called oral history. So the divide between oral history and oral tradition. Oral history... And therefore presumed to be accurate. Well, presumed to be 
more accurate. Again, again, you know, if we're not talking about the Holy Spirit's inspiration, right, we're just right. talking about what normally happens. Right. People can make mistakes, but this is not like the telephone game. I mean, it, and, and Barry Schwartz and other memory theorists have actually debunked that illustration uh, as memory theorists. The telephone game is like if, uh, well, let's say there were 100 people in the room instead of just you and me. Um, so uh, I say something to you, you say something to the next person, and so on. By the time it gets back to me, somebody's going to have messed it up, uh, maybe more than one person. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to get distorted. But that is uh, what memory theorists call chain transmission as opposed to net transmission, where something is stated openly in front of a number of people. Um, Normally, with, with that case, I mean, it's like if we teach in a classroom and our students go out and they're going to prepare for an exam. Well, disciples back then, it wasn't necessarily exams, but uh, some, some schools of disciples, they actually were supposed to repeat back everything that they were taught. So their memory was trained their memory, in ways that ours is not. Today. Yeah, and, and some people say, well, that's just for literate people. That's not true. You look at what we know of, of ancient schools, some of them emphasized learning texts, some of them emphasized learning oral material. Uh, and, and so you had people who were illiterate who could become disciples and learn things orally. So the, the question of, of whether the disciples were literate or not is a moot point, especially since disciples were often expected to publish their teachers' teachings. They could either do it themselves or they could dictate it. I mean, Jesus had a number of disciples. Well, they had a whole lot of people listening to them. And so even if only 2% of, of people in Judea and Galilee were literate, which is how low some people estimate, other people estimate much, much higher than that. Um, certainly Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been literate. Uh, if we know anything about ancient tax collectors, they, they kept records, right? So, but... If, if, if only 2% were literate, I mean, they've got more than 100 followers. They've got somebody who can write this stuff down. So, you know, and memory studies show that short, well, you've got short-term memory. Those things often don't stay very long. Uh, you're going to remember the gist longer than the verbatim memory. Things that are significant to us after a year, we, we will have forgotten a lot of the things we consider significant. After five years, you know, maybe we've forgotten 50, 60%. But of the things we remember after five years that, that were significant enough to us to make that kind of impression that we remember them, most of those seem to persist for decades after that. And consequently, it's not surprising. I mean, how, much, how many things would you have to remember to fill a gospel? And you know, the first time you see somebody raised from the dead, that's probably going to be memorable. Yeah, I think that's, that's going to stick I think in that's memory. That's going to stick. You know, after the first few times, maybe, maybe, maybe it gets you know too normal. But I mean, the first few times, you're going to think, "Ah, oh, that made an impression." Okay. So, so the, the significance of the event, how sort of how earth-shattering it might have yes. been for the audience, determines a lot about how vividly it's remembered and how yes. long. It's remembered. That's that's yes. a really enlightening part of this because yeah. the stuff that sticks for five years is likely to stick for yes. you know the next thirty to forty years. Yes, which takes us you know right into the time frame of yeah. you know when the first gospels yeah. were written. Yeah, and Robert, Robert McIver has pointed this out. Um, that's uh, 
McIver, Bauckham, and others have, have dealt with this in terms of psychological memory. In terms of social memory, uh, again, we're in the period of oral, oral history, so you're not going to have the, the major kind of distortions you get after that. I mean, all the, all the other Gospels we have, I wish it weren't so, but all the other Gospels we have available today, like Gospel of Thomas is probably the earliest of the other ones, um, the, the uninspired apocryphal <laughs> gospels, to it, be clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the apocryphal gospels. I'm not talking about the first century gospels. These these ones after the first century are not within living memory, and so it's not surprising that you've got you know them developing in, in different ways. But all the first century gospels are by definition, you know, first century. They're they're from within living memory of, of Jesus' teaching. Yeah, and that's really helpful. I think to to highlight how significant that is, that they were written down within living memory, as opposed to other ancient biographies that we take as generally historically accurate yeah. that were you know, much, much farther out yeah. from the, the life of the person they're writing about. Yeah. Now, Craig, you maintain in your book that uh, there's uh, maybe more than a handful of difficulties in the Scripture that are resolved by seeing the Gospels as ancient biographies uh, and, holding, and holding the Gospel writers to ancient mm. historical standards of historical accuracy, not modern ones. What, what, are, some of the, what are some of the difficulties that you think are, are resolved by seeing the Gospels as these ancient, in this ancient biography genre? Yeah. I actually... I don't see most of them as difficulties, but that's because I've been reading them this way so long that I'm not used to seeing them as difficulties. But, you know, that, that some people see as difficulties. Sometimes it's the arrangement. Sometimes it's the wording, um, like we talked about earlier. Uh, now, there, there are others where this, doesn't, this approach doesn't answer all the questions. So, I mean, there's still um, things like Jesus' genealogy, I don't know the answer for that. I mean, I, have, I can give suggestions for that, and I've heard some, some good suggestions, but I don't have you know, an answer for that based on this approach. But most things, I think, you know, that people bring up... When, when, I, when I first started reading the Gospels, I had just been converted from atheism, so I knew nothing. I did read ancient sources. Uh, I, I mean, I had read already a number of ancient... Uh, Historians. I'd read Tacitus. I'd read, um, you know, as coming kind of as a latecomer to the New Testament. But when when I started into the Gospels, because people told me this is God's word, I had my certain idea of what that should look like. You know, which was kind of more like I mentioned Osiander, who said, you know, Jairus' uh, daughter gets raised three times. So I'm reading the Gospels. I get to the end of Matthew. I'm fine with it. I get to the end of Mark, and I'm like, wait. This is the second time he's getting crucified. What? That doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I didn't know how to read them yet. But rereading them over and over again, um, early in my Christian life, I found if you read 40 chapters of the Bible a day, you can get through the New Testament every week or through mm -hmm. the Bible every month. I had a lot of catching up to do. I mean, little kids in Sunday school right. knew more about the Bible than I did. Right. So eventually you get, you get familiar with the kind of narration you have in the Gospels. And and the in the way that Jesus taught, and kind of what what the meaning, what the impact of that should be. Okay. So, um, Craig, one last question: um, How how has your confidence in the Gospels grown 
mm. by this study of ancient biography and then the writing that you've done. It's, it, it's, it's certainly grown a lot. Um, <laughs> certainly from way beyond when I got to the end of Mark that first time. <laughs> but, but even, you know, since then, I mean, as a, as a Christian, I, I knew, okay, I take this for granted. This is God's message to us. But how do I read it? How do I understand it? Um, and then, you know, my first doctoral course in, in a uh, gospel, it was a course on Mark, and I already knew that, the, I mean, I already understood the gospels as ancient biographies. This was in the, it was around 1987. I think, actually, I think it was 1987. And the professor said the gospels are ancient. Watch that memory, huh? Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it was, I know it was 1987 because it was my first year, my first semester of my doctoral work. So the, the professor said the gospels are ancient biographies. Ancient biographies were fictitious, and therefore the gospels are fictitious. And I guess that, that is almost a genesis of, of this, mm-hmm. this quest. I, I said, but it's my understanding that ancient biographies were essentially historical works. And I cited Plutarch and Suetonius and what they were doing. And at the end of my, you know, giving some of the, some of the stuff I've talked about today and uh, giving some examples, the professor responded by saying, I don't know. I don't know anything about ancient biography. I read it in a book. Really? Yeah, I think I found... Well, God bless him for yeah. getting that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was... Most professors were... I mean, most professors weren't saying that the Gospels were fictional there anyway, but this professor was. But I, I guess for that reason, I've paid more attention to, to this question and I have to keep reminding myself that not everybody has and I have to keep going back over the, the basics again because, I mean, people will make these statements like, well, ancient biographies were, were like this, but they're thinking about... You know, they're throwing together the historical novel with mm-hmm. with uh, these these biographies from the early empire. They're throwing together proto-biographies with them. They're throwing together uh, other stuff that it, it it's it's dissimilar. I mean, we don't have any historical novels about recent characters. Everything within the Gospels gives us reason to believe they they want to communicate to us the real story. Of course, from their perspective, but you know, as Christians, we believe it's inspired. But you know, from a purely uh, new—well, I don't know if it's neutral—but <laughs> secular historical standpoint, we can say these are biographies within living memory from the apex of historical biography. Hey, we ought to take this seriously. We know a lot about Jesus. We don't know as much as as we want to know, but we know so much more about him than New Testament scholars and particularly certain groups of New Testament scholars, say the Jesus Seminar, and certainly the Jesus Mythers, um, we know a whole lot more about Jesus than a lot of scholars are ready to take into account. I think that's, I, I find that very, not only very encouraging, but also really insightful. As a, it's a really nice summary of how to answer some of the critics of the Gospels who say that, well, they just can't be trusted, they had an agenda, they're not historical, it's ancient history. Um, I, I think the, the word is to the critics of the gospel, be very careful how you throw around those accusations yeah. because the, the conventions of ancient biography tend to, tend to paint a very different picture yes. of the gospels. 
Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the, all the work that you've done in this area to bring this to light. Huge thanks to our guest today, Dr. Craig Keener. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the, the second of these two parts on his book, Christo Biography. Uh, it's great stuff, great material, and I think very encouraging as to the historical reliability of the gospel accounts. So, Craig, thanks so much for being with us, not only, not only this time, but the week before Thank as well. Thanks so much, Scott. It's always great to be with you. Well, this has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Craig Keener, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.